Escape velocity. Welcome to episode 12 of Escape Velocity Radio. I'm one of your hosts, Chris. I'm sitting here with... Hi, I'm Derek. Derek, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing not too bad. I haven't seen you in about three and a half weeks, yeah, except you, for yesterday and the day before. You were on tour. Uh, I took a week off and sat by a lake. Must be nice. It was nice. I wish I was back there right now. I wish you were back there right now. We should record a podcast at, at the, the lake. lake. We received a lot of critical feedback on our discussion last episode of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. Right. Some interesting stuff. Yeah, I think I'm going to go ahead and say that this is the most feedback that we have ever received, which perhaps is a testament to what it means to challenge any sort of orthodoxy, even in like the activist movement, even slightly, which I think is categorically a good thing. It also illustrates that our little podcast is an insufficient forum to flesh out an entire issue. Yes. Especially when it's hosted by the two of us, the two idiots sitting in this basement. And the reaction was based on, we had a couple of listeners, for example, post that they actually had to turn the podcast off when they were listening to it because they felt angry with us. I always do that. For questioning the tactic of, of BDS against Israel. Well. Uh, people become uncomfortable. Hmm. I become uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable right now. Sorry about that couch. We didn't come out and say, don't support the boycott divestment sanctions movement. No, we didn't. I see the point in it, but all we did was wonder aloud. Yeah. I think it's important to, it's important to interrogate these things. Yeah. We're not really interrogators though. We're oh, just yeah. wanderers. I'm like, uh, you know, those guys, at the CIA black sites. I'm yeah. like two of those guys put together. So should we review some of this, uh, some sure. of this feedback? Because people had some pretty interesting points. I, I'm interested to hear what they had to say because I haven't actually read a lot of this feedback. Okay, well, I would say the, the most common response that we received uh, was regarding the claims of hypocrisy in the contemporary BDS movement. We discussed how most all of the charges leveled against Israel as grounds for the boycott could likewise be leveled at Western nations, particularly Canada and the U.S., uh, Canada having long-running and ongoing colonial crimes against First Nations, and the U.S. committing arguably the most egregious state-perpetrated crimes on the planet, right. I would say. So the feedback we received there was that given the state of the world, hypocrisy or double standards can't be taken as a cause for inaction. There's, there's always going to be someone else doing the same thing or worse somewhere in the world. Right. And all we can do is focus our efforts in the place where we feel compelled to. Right. Case by case. Case by case. So I think this is completely correct. A point well taken. But I think Chomsky's argument covered two points related to this. First, in this specific case, with this specific boycott call, uh, his point was that that, that double standard is easily exploited by right. anti-Palestinian proponents, making it a liability against the boycott hmm. tactic. Second, 
since Israel could not continue the occupation without tacit political and military support from the U.S., it's in fact the U.S. government that should be the target of any campaign as that is where the power ultimately resides. Right. That makes sense. Uh, and he makes the comment uh, in that interview that you should, quote, do the hard thing and look at what's happening at home, which I think is a good rule to keep in mind. But I think the point stands nonetheless. It's, um, I think the charge of hypocrisy is all too easily used as a way to just dismiss any form of activism. Uh, right. Don't do nothing because you can't do everything. Exactly. So hopefully not too many people actually took that as us saying, if it's hypocritical to work on one issue and not another, then you should work on nothing at all. The second bit of feedback we got was the fact that it was Palestinians who were making the call right. for the BDS and that that was really important that we didn't pay much attention to that point, which we were maybe remiss in doing. And I guess the idea here is that uh, when activists are working on behalf of marginalized people, we should take the lead provided by those people. Right. A listener named Josh Stevens wrote us and he had this to say. One can debate the tactical strategic merits of BDS as an outsider, but one doesn't do so in a vacuum. It's something undertaken fully after, implicitly or otherwise, disputing that Palestinians are the best suited to determine the terms and means of their own liberation. And I would argue that one has to qualify or provide some account of that conclusion before being able to dispute the merits of BDS. That doesn't mean that such debates can't occur or that one has to blindly embrace a tactic simply because the oppressed in a given scenario have called for it. But the stakes of that are altogether different than what I felt was conveyed in your piece. Right. So I think that that's a, that's a fair critique. But I do think, although obviously part of being a good ally is not dictating tactics to the people you're working alongside. Right. I think that wholesale deferral to those same people is kind of patronizing as well because yeah. it assumes that you, for some reason, can't engage in a debate as equals right. with them about what is a good tactic uh, and what isn't. Mm -hmm. But regardless, uh, a good point that we didn't make super clear, I guess. Mary Rue on Twitter pointed out that many see the BDS movement as indeed working. And that establishment voices inside Israel are expressing serious concerns over its effects. Right. I read this one. I saw this one. Yeah. So this is a post by Larry Durfner in Plus 972 magazine. And in it, he points out a few such instances with leading business people, academic leaders, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu himself sounding the alarm that they're feeling the pressure from the BDS movement. We'll put a link to that article uh, in the show notes. And I thought the interesting angle here is that if the movement is indeed working and Chomsky's main issue with it is that it was doomed to fail and would indeed backfire. Mm -hmm. I wonder if this playing out positively for Palestinians would change his view. A question to be posed to the man himself. Lastly, Chris, a listener named John commented on our website with some insight into the parallels to apartheid South Africa. Chomsky had made the point that the BDS movement against South Africa hit its stride after there was already a large international distancing from the country, uh, including in the U.S. Senate, a point at which we are nowhere near with Israel. Right. John posted this. I think the timing aspect could also be argued either way. The first boycott divestment campaign against South Africa actually started in the late 1950s, way before the stage that the general public generally accepted the anti-apartheid arguments. 
The campaign was unsuccessful at first, but grew alongside the wider awareness raising in the next 20 to 30 years. In that respect, you could argue that the South African example shows the exact opposite of what Chomsky says, that in fact, it's best to start small and grow as part of the movement. So overall, that's a lot of excellent feedback on this issue. And uh, I think it's definitely softened my agreement with the uh, Chomskyan Finkelstein view. Hmm. Let's hear a song. It's been crazy. Yeah. You've been away. Been away. Yes. Been here. Mm-hmm. Been there. What have you been doing this summer? Tell us about you. What been to haven't twice. I been doing this summer is the question. What haven't I been doing? A lot of things. Most things. Pretty much everything. I haven't done that much. You know, I don't like to do things. Period. No, it's true. Generally. Yeah. So tell us a little more about this tour. You were in Europe. You we- were there for a few weeks and you were covering, uh, covering what countries? We went all the way from Norway. Beautiful Norway. Okay. Unbelievably beautiful Norway. I'd like to go there someday. It's like the white shell writ large. Okay. Although I guess the white shell is probably as big as Norway. So it's not really writ large. Writ same. So from Norway all the way down to Greece and Spain. Hmm. It's a long way to go in two weeks. That is. And uh, who who were you over there with? We played the first bulk of the shows with Antilectual Dutch band. And then the, it's like intellectual, but but they're against it. Yes, so they're stupid. Is that what it is? I don't know. Oh, okay. They're not stupid though. No, very nice people. Good. And the last couple shows we played with our old friends from Spain, legendary gas drummers, excellent band. Yeah. Both bands have new records out, and both bands, hilariously enough, 
I guess this is the way you get on a propaganda tour. You just ask me to sing on your record. <laughs> and uh, then did you what, did you sing on both their both their albums? Both really? Is this like a backup thing, or or do you, do you have like a guest track? Like a guest track where really? I sing. I just go for it. Are you? Do you rap? Are you rapping on it? No. We at Escape Velocity Radio yep. received an interesting email while you were away. Oh, regarding our tour? On Regarding your tour. Um, it was an email from Nils Fischer uh, mm-hmm. in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, the subject of his email was the saddest day of my life slash monster energy and East Pack present propaganda. Right. He then goes on to explain how he went to a propaganda show in Germany. Bochum. Bochum, Germany. Was shocked when he looked at the ticket and saw that there was corporate sponsorship from Monster Energy Drink and East Pack yeah. apparel emblazoned on the ticket and he felt like he had been betrayed by his heroes. I think he I think his email I think he was kind of joking a bit. Oh, was he? But uh but his point was well taken. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, when we saw the ticket which was hidden from us until somebody brought it up to Dave Hugel our merch seller. Mm-hmm. But we were obviously as shocked and upset as Nils was. Probably more, I would say. We were fucking pissed off. Because it, in in principle, just I mean in case anybody is unaware Throughout the history of the band, you have categorically refused to play shows with large corporate sponsorships. This is true. Yeah. On a on point of principle and to the detriment of your coffers. Do you know what Consumer Report is? It is a non-profit publication uh, published by the Consumers Union where they look into products. Objectively. Without, Objectively. Without sponsorship, without yep. taking advertising, because why? Because you cannot have, you cannot find out the impartial truth about anything when you are beholden financially to those same interests which you are reviewing. Right. So we've always viewed the role of an artist in society as a consumer reporter. Meaning that if you're going to talk about the world around you, how can people trust what you're saying if you're just accepting money from all these companies? Some of which are very much engaged in what's wrong in the world. Right, right. Yeah, it makes it's common sense. Yeah, it's best to just have a blanket policy on it because it's a slippery slope. You see, a band says, "Oh, oh, we'll just do this one little shoe company thing." And the next thing you know, they're fucking playing for a car company, mm-hmm. which I got asked to do an interview in Germany, sitting in a Hyundai car while they filmed it. Really, talking about some record I liked, and I, I just said, obviously, I said, I'm "Not doing that." It's an odd world. So yeah, obviously we did not consent to this. We we actually had the same problem with the same promoter before. It's just how the world of so-called punk music operates now because... Well, not just punk music, all entertainment. All music, but specifically the, the scene we, we exist in operates this way because all the bands have just fucking let it happen for so long and enjoyed whatever short-term benefits they can get from it to the point where it's weird for a promoter not like they can't understand why you wouldn't want to have these stupid companies sponsoring your show. Yeah. The the frustrating thing is in these same countries we'll get an offer from some one of these big festivals sponsored by the same stupid companies, energy drinks and fucking stupid clothing companies and the offers are for fucking huge amounts of money for us to play and we say no to it because we don't want to play for these sponsors. Then we show up to this place uh, some fucking shitty show in Bochum, Germany, up against all the other corporate festivals. Playing at the same playing time. Playing at the same time. And the fucking guy puts the same sponsors on anyways, and we get paid dick. Yeah. And uh, fuck. So in summary, 
punk band has sour grapes because they're bad at capitalism. But well, I like that. You know, I like you, not yeah. being a good business person. You know what? I would say it is a, a testament to actually how you are doing the best you can under capitalism that you have persevered for this long while trying to maintain ethical business practices as a band. Because if you were truly bad at it and you were trying to be ethical, then you probably would have failed miserably long ago. Well, it's interesting we're having this discussion, Chris, because... Is it? It is. Because we received an email just recently from Escape Velocity Radio listener and fellow Winnipegger, Greg Gallinger. Ah, Greg. He wrote us asking exactly about this, about living an ethical life under capitalism. Greg goes on to say, how can one live an anarchist or whatever anti-capitalist ideology one may subscribe to life within a capitalist system. I'd like to hear both your thoughts on how this is accomplished, especially how to carve out an existence for oneself and make a living without sacrificing one's own beliefs and core values. How can you work within a capitalist system while maintaining anarchist values? That's a great question. And I think you've, you've addressed this with your own band. I think the answer is, I don't think it's a complicated answer necessarily. I think that where people get tripped up is that they assume you have to have some sort of all or nothing ideology, you know, to, you have to say, I'm going to completely divorce myself from any compromise in my life, which is completely impossible. Or completely disengage from culture and society. Yeah. In its totality. Yeah. I don't think it's hard to just, when you're making choices in your day-to-day life and in your job choices, if you have them, a lot of people don't have the luxury of choosing a quote unquote ethical job just evaluate your choices and evaluate your impacts yeah there's no truly satisfying or morally pure way to be born into the framework of capitalism and not be tainted by it right so you got to come to terms with that first whether you're anarchist or whatever the hell you are this is the matrix Mm -hmm. we live in a capitalist matrix and all you can do is advocate against it and support alternative models to it and emerging alternative models and and live your own life in a way which you feel aligns with your values as much as possible just like when we had colleen patrick goudreau and we were talking about v she was talking about veganism as a way to live your values as a way to enact your values not some sort of end goal but if you think i want to live in a world that has as little needless suffering and death as possible well how can i enact those values in my life an easy way to do that is to go vegan. Minimize the amount that you directly contribute to needless suffering and death as much as possible. So you can make similar approximations. Greg, like separately in the email, Greg asked about my own work, making websites for people. How do I, you know, running my own business, how do I make decisions that, you know, try to keep in mind my values? And he asked about me turning down clients, which I do. If I have a client that comes to me and they want me to build a website for something that I find is having a net negative impact on the world, then because I am my own boss, I can make that decision to say, no, someone working at doing my same job as some agency might not have that freedom or might feel like they don't. But you know, if you're in a position where you can, then that's, it's just a choice to make in exchange for the money I need to live. Will I compromise my values, you know, in order to know that I'm directly contributing to something that I think makes the world a shittier place. 
Hmm. So I think if we ask ourselves these questions in as many aspects of our lives as we are comfortable asking them in, whether that be food choices or buying anything, anytime you're exchanging money for goods, you know, evaluate, is this product or the, the people who are benefiting from my money here, are they making the world a better place or a shittier place? And do I want to make that sacrifice? <laughs> It will not be perfect. It will be far, far from perfect. But if you don't, it's better to think about it and try to make those decisions where you can than to just say, ah, everything's a compromise. It's all fucked. It doesn't matter. Right. And I think that's the other thing you have to come to terms with. There will be a cost for your principles. The case in point for us, two relatively privileged people in society, we've sacrificed quote unquote career advancement for our principles. You, You turn down certain clients that would otherwise possibly offer you a lot more money or a wider base of clients. We turn down money, obscene amounts of money, not to be shills for corporations, mm-hmm. but that, that is, it's what Hedges calls the cost of a moral life. Right. You have to, you have to accept that you will not get the promotion. You will be fired from a job. You will be denied access to people and places and resources that you would not otherwise if you just shut up and did what everybody else did. But again, at the end of the day, I think that integrity is going to be a better investment than than the short-term money you got 20 years ago for shilling for some corporation. Provided that you already have the privilege enough yeah. to make that decision in yeah. the first place. Like there are obviously people who by birthright and through circumstance have almost no opportunity to make these moral choices because they are literally just trying to survive. But it's you and me, two white men talking about... Good-looking white men. Good-looking white men. Well, on that note, Chris, maybe we should hear a couple of those bands that you were talking about. Antilectual and the Gas Drummers. Okay, here's Antilectual, followed by the Gas Drummers.
of capitalism and life under it and life under it we saw Elysium the other night the movie Elysium starring Matt Damon we saw that didn't we we did which is a uh, a not too far future movie about where we're headed where the gap between rich and poor is extreme is extreme the not rich that, not that it's not extreme now but it's much more extreme or pronounced in this movie earth has been essentially eviscerated looks like a shithole it's just just a global barrio Mm -hmm. while the rich live in terrariums essentially pristine habitats in some sort of low orbit outside of earth and they have access to medical care that is essentially essentially keeps the human body alive forever it appears and uh, the poor have no access to any medical care on earth Mm -hmm. and the goal of people on earth is to try to get to elysium try to get their children there uh, our friend, our mutual friend, Paul Burroughs, he, he has not seen this movie, but he commented to me that it sounds like an episode of Star Trek, the original Star Trek called The Cloud Minders. Oh, yeah? In which the intellectual and artistic class hmm. lived in orbit above the planet and the people on the surface basically labored right. in order to support them. So a common theme in sci-fi. Yep. And I thought I thought it was a good movie. I know everybody hates it. You thought it was good. Yeah, good movie. That's a strong, that's a strong statement. It's so funny from a guy who told me Jack Reacher was a good movie. I did not say Jack Reacher was was okay. I said it was okay. It's one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) It's so terrible. It's so terrible. You just have to go in with the right expectations. And that is my problem with, I think I went in to see Elysium with expectations that were too inflated. Oh, I had zero expectations. Yeah. So the movie got made. And it made a huge statement, I thought, about 
immigration policy in the U.S. and Canada. And it made a great statement of how racist it is, first of all, mm-hmm. and how immoral it is. And also the commentary on medical services being the exclusive domain of the wealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, another salient point, mm-hmm. as they say. I thought uh, I thought those were two huge things for a stupid Hollywood blockbuster crowd to be to be seeing. No, that is true. It succeeded on those points on making very broad, ham-fisted, poorly written points about those things, which in in the realm of Hollywood movies is rare. Right. But on every other point, I was disappointed in that oh, movie. That was pretty good, <laughs> except for the special effects. That was all right. There's a lot of critique to be made about that movie in its representations of race in its representations of gender pitfalls that it did not need to fall into in order to do the exact same things with the movie. It just seems like right. there Hollywood- are a lot of choices that were made that there's no, there's no good reason to make them other than to just fall into the standard yes. trope that everyone expects. And that disappointed me. Don't disagree with that. But this is probably why we'll never see a movie version of 2312, Kim Stanley Robinson's epic tale of a farther future. That's right. By about 150 years, I'd say. But strikingly, also terrarium-centric. The vast majority of people living in the solar system are living in terrariums. The terrariums are all over the galaxy. They're hollowed out asteroids Okay. in general. There's one that's actually called Winnipeg in the book. Wow. And... The terrariums are economically connected through something called the Mondragon Accord, hmm. which is essentially a participatory economic-based model for the for the solar system. That, that, would, that would be named after the Mondragon Collectives in, yeah. in Spain. Kim Stanley actually references Michael Albert and Robin Hanel by name in the book when referring to the, to the inspiration for the economic framework. So for listeners who are unaware, Michael Albert and Robin Hanel are sort of the... They've written a bunch of books over the last 20 years uh, about this economic theory called participatory economics, which is posited as an alternative, an egalitarian alternative to all of the the major economic systems that people think of, you know, namely being capitalism or some sort of central planning socialism or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a third option. And was, was the inspiration for the workplace structure at G7. That's right. When it existed. It's interesting because in contrast to a movie like Elysium or a lot of blockbusters or independent movies that try to foresee our future, this one actually doesn't assume that the gap between rich and poor escalates constantly over time and right. things and, and we have a dystopian future. This is this is one that is not perfect, but it posits a system where people have perhaps looked to the best parts of the past of what has happened on Earth, say in Spain in the 30s in regards to collectivized workplaces and have applied those principles to the colonization of the solar system. Very interesting. That is very interesting. You were telling me recently about a book that you received as part of the Friends of AK Press Club that was directly related to some of this early workers' movements that 2312 draws inspiration from in its speculation about the modeling of the economy. Funnily enough, AK sent me the book Anarchism and Workers' Self-Management in Revolutionary Spain. It sounds like a very AK Pressian title. Usually when a book like this would show up in the mailbox, I would just put it aside and think, I'm never going to read that. 
But uh, because we just got back from Spain and we've been, and while I was there, I was reading 2312 and it was reminding me of alternative ways of, of organizing a society. This book is sort of the inspiration for this far future interplanetary economic system. In Spain in the 30s, there were almost 2 million people that were organized into rural and industrial collectives. That's crazy. That's crazy. Out of 6 million people in the country. So that's, I mean, that's a... Third of the country is is organized this way. Yeah. Was organized under essentially anarchist workplace organizing principles. But uh, obviously they were crushed by the, the fascists and betrayed, some say, by the Soviets. Everybody betrayed these things because it was a game-changing way of organizing society. So of course it was crushed. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting that in Kim Stanley Robinson's book, it's the opposite. That's how everybody organizes in the solar system. And things like capitalism are, are things people do for a hobby in a fringe economy. Hmm. Interesting. So anyways, those two things tie together. And I think if people are interested in 2312, and it seems like some people who listen to our podcast are interested in those sort of things, yeah. it's, it also helps to check out books like this from AK Press. Anarchism and Workers' Self-Management in Revolutionary Spain. I think if anybody wants to delve a little further into participatory economics, mm -hmm. there's a new book by Robin Hanel, who we mentioned, that is an excellent introductory primer. This is a very succinct, short chaptered. It's kind of, I think, the summary of 20 years of writing about these topics in much more depth, definitely aimed at someone who just wants to get their yeah. feet wet. Yeah. And uh, I've been reading it and it's actually... Yeah, it's an excellent intro because I never made it through any of those other books oh, I that did. they wrote about Paracon. I made it through Thinking Forward and almost all of Paracon, but I retained nothing. <laughs> I had to stop reading Paracon because the type that they set the book in, it was so impossible to read. Yeah. Apparently, under Paracon, there are no typographers. So Robin Hennell's new book is called Of the People by the people. Good. We will have a link to it in the show notes. It's an excellent primer. And if people want to read it, or even if they don't, we are going to have Robin Hanel on the show in a forthcoming episode of Escape Velocity Radio discussing the ideas in Of the People by the People and participatory economics in general. Maybe some of our listeners want to read the book and maybe they'll have questions for him. Yeah. And maybe they want to get those questions Answer. to us so we can ask him, him. When, when we talk we, to, him. to him. Yeah. Oh. What do you think He's of that a, idea? Yeah, yeah. I love it. So again, the book is Of the People by the People by Robin Hanel. There's a link in the show notes. Check it out. Read it. Any questions, send them through to us. We will put them to Robin Hanel, the man himself, when we interview him for an upcoming show. It's 3030. 
I want y'all to meet Deltron Zero Hero, not no small feat It's all heat in this day and age I'll rage your grave Anything it takes to save the day Neuromancer, perfect blend of technology and magic Use my rapping so you all can see the hazards Plus entertainment where many are brainless We cultivated a lost art of study And I brought a buddy Automator, hard to slay a fascinating combination Cyber warlords are activating abominations Armination with hatred, we ain't with that We high-tech archaeologists searching for knickknacks Composing musical stem packs that impacts the soul Crack the mold of what you think you rapping for I used to be a mech soldier, but I didn't respect orders I had to step forward, tell them this ain't for us Living in a post-apocalyptic world, morbid and horrid The secrets of the past, they hoarded Now we just boarded on our futuristic spacecraft No mistakes, black, it's our music we must take back first lab-grown burger has been cooked and eaten at a news conference in London. Scientists took cells from a cow and turned them into strips of muscle, which were then combined and made into a patty. English chef Richard McGowan was given the task of preparing the burger for food critics Hanny Rutzler and Josh Schoenwald, who overall gave a positive response. Researchers say the technology could help with meeting the growing demand for meat worldwide. Well, I think most people just don't realise that, that the current meat production is at its maximum and it's not going to supply sufficient meat for the growing demand in the coming uh, 40 years. So we need to come up with an alternative, there's no question. And this can be an ethical and environmentally friendly way to produce meat. Chris, would you eat a cultured meat hamburger? If I gave one to you right now and I said a cow had a little piece of skin taken off, living cow biopsied to create the starter cells for this culture. And then I, much like Dr. Mark Post at Maastricht University in the Netherlands, I grew a hamburger over the course of three months, costing close to half a million dollars. If I gave that hamburger to you, cooked on my barbecue, vegan barbecue, never had meat on it, would you eat that hamburger? No. I would not. Why? I'm too far gone. If I were in survival mode, I could consider eating the tissue of another creature. Right. Probably a person first. Right. But since I'm not there, I'm too far removed from the eating of it to consider it any more palatable than a piece of dog shit. (laughs) The whole idea appeals to me in terms of destroying the animal exploitation industry as it as we know it industrialized slaughter right but i think uh as a few people pointed out to me it's not true that it's cruelty free that you're just picking one little cell off of an animal those animals are from slaughterhouses right currently right maybe not in the future but uh they seem to imply that the toll taken on an existing creature is more than what is being sold to you in the bill of goods as this being a cruelty-free product. So I don't know. Right. I don't know about that. And if something seems too good to be true, it probably is. Right. So this probably is too good to be true. Someone else also pointed out to me that 
Do you think this is going to make animal exploitation on an industrial scale go away? All it's going to do is transfer all those animals to some other use. People will find a use for those animals to keep killing them, confining them. Like the, like the industry will in order to Humans, sustain yeah. itself. And will, that industry will replace the animals for food industry. Is the root of that idea that when you abolish an animal industry based on anything other than ethical considerations, then there will always be something new that will spring up? That, that's what seemed to be being implied. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I totally, I mean, that's certainly a possibility, but I don't know if I necessarily see that because yeah. our use of animals isn't, it isn't ideological. It is based on our dominion. So it's, we have needs or uses that are being filled. And currently they are the standardized accepted way to fulfill these various needs. But I think that if we can fill those needs in different ways that are more economical and more logical, then eventually that's what will take over. Right. Even if those arguments have some legitimacy, I think you have to crunch the numbers essentially in terms of suffering and see if half, even if only half the number of animals suffer through this process, if the industry, as we know it, shrinks in half, that should be seen as preferable to what we have now. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think anybody is suggesting that we stop advocating for veganism while we are advocating the research into culturing meat as opposed to slaughtering animals for it. I, it just seems like a, a no brainer to me that you can, you can do both things at the same time and acknowledge that not in our lifetimes, not in many generations to come lifetimes will we have a planet that collectively says, Hey, uh, I think this whole thing where we're murdering animals for food, well, we just got to cut that out. The ethical considerations, they will not create the sea change. It will be the practical considerations that create probably the yeah. sea change. And I think that this is probably the best bet for crossing that threshold that into dramatically reducing the suffering and number of animals that are bred and slaughtered. Knowing humans like I do, you know how well I know humans. Even if this takes another 50 years or more, it will still have a much larger impact on reducing the suffering of animals than veganism will in that time. I, I mean, hopefully not. Yeah. I hope there's a big sea change to do with veganism, but it seems unlikely to me. Uh, Semi-related to this, have you seen this movie Antiviral? No. In this movie, uh, which is about people paying for celebrity illnesses in a dystopian future where celebrity culture has gone even more overboard than it has now. Wow. Another aspect of, of that society is that culturing meat has become very advanced and people go to delis where they eat cultured meat that is based on cells of their favorite celebrities. Oh, wow. And so they eat, they eat their celebrities. Human meat. Yeah. It was the most interesting aspect of hmm. that movie. And it actually doesn't seem entirely impossible. I'll have one Pamela Anderson with a side of Fawcett, please. So in case anybody who's listening is wondering, why are scientists now getting serious about investigating cultured meat? Well, according to Alok Jha, the science correspondent for the Guardian newspaper, he says 
The human appetite for meat means that 30% of the Earth's usable surface is covered by pasture land for animals, compared with just 4% of the surface used directly to feed humans. The total biomass of our livestock is almost double that of the people on the planet and accounts for 5% of carbon dioxide emissions and 40% of methane emissions, a much more potent greenhouse gas. Hmm. So he's pointing to the environmental concerns as being the primary driving factor behind this. There's too many people who want too much meat and it takes too many animals and too much land and too much food. Too much water. Too much water. Too much oil. Too much effluent. Too many emissions. Yeah, it seems from a practical perspective, people should at least be fleshing, no pun intended, fleshing this whole thing out instead of just either shutting it down or jumping in whole hog. (laughs) No other pun intended. Given that UN report a few years ago that attributed greenhouse gases primarily to the animal for food industry. That's right. I think it it said consuming less meat could be like the number one course of action to ameliorate climate change. Yeah, this could be the shortcut. Mm -hmm. And you know how much we like shortcuts. I fucking love shortcuts. Thanks for tuning in for episode 12 of Escape Velocity Radio. The show is produced, recorded, and edited by Wayne Gretzky. We want your feedback. Email us at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com or leave us a voicemail on Skype at username Escape Velocity Radio. To join the discussion about this incredible episode or to check out the amazing show notes, visit our unbelievable website at escapevelocityradio.com. If you're not already, please subscribe to the show in iTunes, or you can sign up for our email list to be notified when each new episode is available. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Sound. Those links and our email sign-up form can be found on our website at escapevelocityradio.com. <laughs>